Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member special access to cool events behind the scenes footage and so much more plus you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon it's in you please be in it visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now that's podcast with an s thanks from kqed From KQBD in San Francisco, I'm Mina Kim. Coming up on Forum, a deep dive into the impact of sea level rise on California's fabled coast. LA Times environment reporter Rosanna Shaw writes that by the end of this century, climate change and storm and tidal patterns could cause sea levels in California to rise by as much as seven feet, inundating coastal towns and causing billions in damages. But Shaw says it's not too late to chart a different course. We'll talk with Shaw about visiting cities and towns along the more than 1,000 miles that make up California's coastline and what it taught her about a way forward in our battle with the rising sea. Join us. Welcome to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. California's coast is vanishing. Surely and no longer so slowly, says L.A. Times environment reporter Rosanna Shaw. Rising seas are causing collapsed buildings, flooded roads, shattered seawalls. But Shaw says there are California communities that are managing sea level rise successfully and challenging us to adopt a deeper way of thinking about our coastline. Rather than confront the water as though it's our doom, Shaw writes in her new book, California Against the Sea, can we reframe sea level rise as an opportunity, an opportunity to mend our fractured relationship with the shore? Rosanna Shaw joins me now. Welcome to Forum. Hi, Mina. It's so nice to be here. It's really good to talk with you, Rosanna. Just to help me wrap my mind around sea level rise, the rate of sea level rise, really, can you remind me of the projections for California? Yeah. And, you know, just to step back one quick second, like I I often hear the term slow moving disaster when talking to folks in the sea level rise world, right? This is like the less talked about climate change disaster in California. You can't stand on the beach for one afternoon and really feel the urgent disaster of sea level rise, you know, but the sea is rising. And this is just kind of the context for the numbers. You know, the ocean absorbs so much of the excess heat from our excess carbon emissions. And, you know, if you think about it, warm water expands and it's going to continue to expand through, you know, the next like decades, centuries. And, you know, the state of California kind of looked at these numbers and they've been, you know, depending on who you talk to, some say this, some say that, but the state of California kind of just looked at the numbers, gathered all their agencies, and recently committed to preparing as many communities as possible for at least three and a half feet of sea level rise by 2050, which, if you think about it, is not that far off into the future. And then kind of looking farther out to like 2100 end of century, we're looking at possibly 
six, maybe even seven feet as the high end extreme. And, you know, there are folks that say those numbers feel too dire. But I mean, think about how even one foot of sea level rise might look like along our coast today when you add a king tide or a storm or just like a big swell on top of that. And we're really reaching this threshold where anything just a little over it can start to compound and cascade into all these consequences that we're not quite ready to face. So, yeah, I mean, three and a half by 2050, three and a half feet by 2050, possibly six or seven by the end of the century. But I would say this is an issue today, even though these numbers feel somewhat far off into the future. Yeah, one of the descriptions that really put this into perspective for me was then you sa- was when you wrote that just one foot of sea level rise pushes the shoreline inland as much as the length of a football field. Yeah, and thank you for reminding me of that because I remember when I first started writing about the coast and sea level rise, I actually didn't quite know what one foot of sea level rise looked like, so I started asking people and it's about, you know, 300 feet, uh, sorry, 300 meters inland and per one per foot. And of course, it's kind of different depending on where you are along the coast and the geography and geology, you know, whether it's cliffs or kind of a lower lying like floodplain. And I think some of the other kind of more descriptive, uh, like descriptions that really helped me start to visualize what these numbers could look like. So there was a big U.S. geological survey study that looked at kind of erosion rates along the entire coast of California. And they basically found that by the end of like by the end of the century, more than two thirds of our beaches in California could be completely drowned out or squeezed out if we continue business as usual. And then the other really, you know, remarkable number to me was just like they looked at the wetland ecosystems along our shoreline, you know, along the entire Pacific coast. And, you know, salt marshes are a super unique and underappreciated ecosystem that supports an incredible array of wildlife, but we have completely squeezed out this ecosystem between what we call land and the ocean. And these ecosystems, according to the USGS, could go completely extinct along the Pacific coast in the next few decades, again, if we continue the way we're living our lives today. Yeah, you write two-thirds of the beaches in Santa Barbara, Los Angeles, Orange County, San Diego could be no more. So, One of the things that I was struck by is that, well, you talk about how other states, North Carolina, Florida, Louisiana, that they've been grappling with rapidly rising seas for decades. But you say that the West Coast has been spared. How have we been spared? Right. Okay. so I'm about to get a little nerdy here. It's called (laughs) the Pacific Decadal Oscillation. So we think about El Nino and La Nina a lot in California. That's like a climate cycle that we're kind of pretty used to. Um, there's also something called the Pacific Decadal Oscillation, which is a similar like climate cycle, ocean atmospheric cycle, and it can basically make the ocean along the West Coast more or less kind of expansive along the shoreline, depending on what po- at what point in the cycle you are at. So, you know, just think about how, again, warm water expands and takes up more volume than cold water. And so during quieter phases of the Pacific Decadal Oscillation, the wind patterns actually pull the water along the coast offshore. So there's cooler water along the actual coast where we engage with the ocean. And this creates a thing that scientists call sea level rise expression. So during much of California's coastal development and population boom in the 50s, like 
that coincided actually with this like quiet phase. So sea level rise felt non-existent. We had a very pretty like static edge along the shoreline that we just started building Pacific Coast Highway and all our homes and just the communities that we know it today. And yeah, like at this time, sea level rise along California for much of our coast, you know, actually was way below the global average. Um, And that really just kind of almost deluded ourselves into thinking that we could build all the way to the edge of the sea. And that edge is inherently supposed to move, right? If you think about the tide line, like you go out to the beach, like the tide is, the the shoreline is different every time you go out there. It changes multiple times a day. But we kind of started fixing this line in the sand thinking that, oh, this is not a threat because, again, the ocean felt relatively quiet during just the peak development periods of our development history. Yeah. And you say now that period is ending and millions of people will be affected. Do you want to just help us maybe imagine it in some of the most densely populated areas of our coast? I mean, and also, I mean, you were just mentioning kind of other places around the country and we don't get hurricanes like Florida. That was one of my talking points for a very long time about sea level rise. But, you know, last month in Los Angeles, we got a hurricane and Uh, So (laughs) that was the first thing that popped into my head. But I would just say, too, like, think about and, and, you know, the California coast is so diverse and not just the communities that live along it, but also the geography. Right. So it stretches for more than 1200 miles from from Oregon all the way to Mexico. And this is not counting the hundreds of miles of inner bay shoreline along the Bay Area. And, you know, if you think about the mix of like super urban, super populated areas and versus like more rural communities, I think, you know, the looking at the what this means for the future and also all our critical infrastructure. So for me, like living in Los Angeles, I often tell folks like just look at Pacific Coast Highway as you're driving along Malibu. It's, you know, our beaches are shrinking. You see those piles of rocks just laid up right against the highway during high tides. Sometimes the the waves are just kind of tickling the edges and sometimes crashing completely over the highway. And this is a reality that will continue to increase in frequency. And I know that in the Bay Area, every time there's a high tide, especially during king tide season, there are all these photos on social media, right, of like just water coming over your roads, bike lanes, and the Embarcadero in San Francisco. And again, like, how do we change this conversation from, oh, this is something that's not going to happen until 30, 40, 50, 60 years from now versus this is actually happening today when the right confluence of things come together. And that quote unquote right confluence perfect storm is happening a lot more frequently. Well, I want to invite listeners to join the conversation. We're talking about sea level rise in California, and I'm wondering if you feel like you are already directly affected by it or are experiencing the effects of sea level rise, or is it a conversation in your city or town? We're talking with Rosanna Shaw, staff writer for the LA Times. Her new book is California Against the Sea, Visions for Our Vanishing Coastline, and you can Email us with your questions or comments at forum at kqed.org. Find us on our social channels at KQED Forum or call us at 866-733-6786, 866-733-6786. So there's something that you say that's incredibly poetic, um, Rosanna, and you say that there exists more than one way to live with rising water, but our current understanding of what the coast should be has overshadowed the possibilities of what could be. We do think of the coastline in a, in a way 
static almost, but even though it is constantly changing. But what role do you think that is playing in our ability to deal with sea level rise? Yeah, and I think, you know, a lot of folks who enter this conversation, I feel like the solutions that get brought up in the first round of conversations is pretty binary. You know, either we build a seawall and we wall off the ocean and maintain this fixed line in the sand that we have created for ourselves, or we have to, quote unquote, manage our retreat. And that is a very fraught term. But manage retreat essentially just means moving, you know, critical infrastructure and homes away from the ocean as it moves inland and acknowledging that the ocean is moving in and that the coastline is supposed to move with it and that we're supposed to move with that as well. And so, you know, what does it mean to hold our fort and hold our ground forever? And is it possible to build a seawall big enough to hold off the largest ocean on our planet? And I think those are some of the questions that the book starts to explore, you know, like, okay, beyond this black and white binary of hold the line or retreat, what what are the gray areas in between? And, you know, is that, do we actually need to be at war with the ocean? I think, you know, the, again, like this, the coastline is this amazing, incredibly dynamic space where land meets ocean. And we have kind of with our built-in environment, our engineered landscapes, kind of forgotten what it's actually supposed to look like. So, you know, there's like, again, I mentioned wetlands and beaches, like these are all these incredible in-between spaces that are meant to be sometimes underwater, sometimes above water, sometimes half underwater. And what does it mean to actually reset our own relationship and connection to these spaces in a way that truly allows us to recognize, hey, like we don't actually have to fight the ocean, we can work with the ocean. And what does that look like for the world and you know the communities that we have built along this beautiful landscape that you know is so intrinsically part of who we are as Californians. It really is. We'll talk more with Rosanna Shaw after the break. Stay with us. I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. 
We're talking with Rosanna Shaw, staff writer for the LA Times. Her new book is California Against the Sea, Visions for Our Vanishing Coastline. In that book, she writes, as our most climate-forward leaders have noted, we are the first generation to feel the consequences of a warming planet and the last generation that can steer a different course. And we're talking today about steering a different course when it comes to sea level rise. And you, our listeners, are invited to join the conversation with your questions or comments about the effects of sea level rise that we are already feeling here in California. You can email them to forum at kqed.org. Call us at 866-733-6786. You can post on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Discord. We're at KQED Forum. So I do want to talk with you a little bit about Pacifica. And one of the reasons that I want to talk about Pacifica is that you say that this is a place that so well illustrates the challenges that many cities and towns are facing when it comes to sea level rise. What's been going on there? Yeah. And, you know, Pacifica gets it so hard sometimes, you know, being in the news essentially every time there's a big storm and especially with how dramatic the waves now hit their bluffs and their main boardwalk every time they get the tide gets particularly high. But, you know, Pacifica is also a great place to start the story of sea level rise in California. And it's a great place to kind of go deeper into why change might feel so insurmountable right now. And this town, you know, just south of San Francisco has a fascinating history and one of the most amazing historical societies I've ever visited along the coast. And as I was learning about all the history and all the work it took the community to become a community, it made me start to wonder, you know, what actually makes a place home and what does it mean to protect a place you love so much in the face of such an existential crisis? You know, the ocean is moving in, it's threatening life as they know it. And, you know, the term manage retreat has been hugely controversial in this town. And, you know, their mayor and city council actually a couple years ago were way ahead of the conversation than they were trying to get ahead of this issue by introducing this kind of what does this mean for the future, for our future in, you know, community meetings and town halls through city policies. But the mayor actually got ousted in late 2018 over this. And there has been a really fraught back and forth ever since on how to proceed into the future in Pacifica. Yeah. And, and so, so what, really, what is managed retreat, though, Rosanna? What is it? Yeah. And so, you know, again, we were talking about this binary between build a seawall or manage retreat. And manage retreat essentially is just recognizing, okay, the ocean is rising. It's moving inland. Let's look at the places that might be underwater or in harm's way 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years from now. And what does it mean to start thinking about, okay, we're identifying the areas that might need to move. How does that look? How do we start that process? And, you know, again, I think the challenge with managed retreat, A, there's like a branding issue. This idea of retreat feels so un-American in some ways. It, it, it really triggers an emotional response that has been so fascinating to explore and understand more deeply. And, you know, the other point is, you know, we all know on some level conscious or subconsciously that 50 years from now, the coast is going to look different somehow. And, you know, the the roads that we t- drive along the coast, the homes that and neighborhoods that we see along the coast today, it's all going to look different somehow. But we also know that none of those changes need to happen today or tomorrow. And so this short-term versus long-term disconnect has been really interesting. And a lot of the conversation 
I've been I've 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 been seeing like the the importance of guiding kind of this conversation into this middle ground, this middle period between short and long term, and recognizing that adapting to the rising ocean is actually not a one-time action. It's a process that needs to begin today so that we can get somewhere 30, 40, 50 years from now. And so Manage Retreat kind of d- tries to do that. But again, like how, I think the, you know, and it's it's also so easy to kind of dismiss this issue as like, you know, rich people problems and wealthy homeowners on the coast wanting to hold on to their slice of paradise for as long as possible. You know, but how about the homeowner who spent her whole life saving up money to finally buy the ugliest house on the prettiest street in town, only to find out shortly after she moved in that her house might need to be relocated at some unknown point in the future because the sea is going to move in and take over. And, you know, that's those are the folks that I started to talk to in Pacifica, you know. And is this homeowner's, like, anxiety valid? Like, yes, they are. And, you know, how do we not vilify people who are struggling with this you know, long-term reality as well as their short-term wants. And, you know, yeah, like these these are complicated conversations, but I think we need to start having them. And Manage Retreat was just like a poorly branded way of starting that conversation. So then if it's not moving back, relocating homes and, you know, plants, factories, businesses, and so on that are along the shoreline, what is the course of action that Pacifica has allowed yeah, and there's been a really, I would say, intense back and forth ever since their prior mayor um, lost re-election in 2018 on just like what the future means. And I think there's there's a seawall, there's a couple seawalls along kind of the the coast in Pacifica, and it's definitely getting to a point where it's not high enough. There are weak spots and you know, just <laughs> along the wall. And so, you know, I would say one half of the conversation is let's make this wall bigger. Let's make this wall stronger. Let's hold on more to time. And I think that's really the debate here. Like how much more time do we have? And others are saying we really need to start this process of rethinking what it means to try to fight the ocean. And again, I mean, you've seen the photos of the homes that are that have already, all the homes that have had to be bought out or relocated or emergency evacuated because the bluff crumbled so quickly during a storm. And, you know, as one person put it to me, it's either going to be managed retreat or unmanaged retreat. And, Meaning you know, what it's forced to because. Yeah. Of the, and the it's already happening in Pacifica. And again, Pacifica and looking at what's happening in this community is a really powerful window into what so many other communities along our coast and not just the California coast elsewhere in the country too, like what they will be facing more and more frequently in the future. Why do climate experts and engineers say that for every new seawall protecting a home or road, a beach for the people is sacrificed? Yes, that's a great point. And it's, it's it's so funny. It's like I've been, it's so surreal to be talking about this book too. I've been like living and breathing the words like for so long that I kind of need to step back and remember the basic kind of facts. With seawalls, I think one of the most controversial things about seawalls is that, you know, once we harden our infrastructure along the coast, we draw this firm line in the sand, we kind of completely disrupt the natural processes of the coastline. And so there's a term coastal squeeze that you hear a lot in the sea level rise and coastal kind of erosion world. But if if you draw a hard line in the sand and the ocean starts to move inland, what gets 
eroded and squeezed out is the beach in front. So literally someone once told me seawalls kill beaches. That is like a very direct point and way of explaining it. But yeah, like think about, yeah, the sand has nowhere to go. The beach is supposed to migrate inland as the ocean is moving inland. But when we create these hard structures, you know, whether it is a seawall or a coastal highway, you know, the beach has nowhere to go. And what ends up happening is it just drowns in front of it. And then the water just carves and carves and carves away against the wall. So you'll see these like very steep slopes along the wall as well. And so that's a coastal crisis, you know, to a lot of people. I've heard that term a lot more than I think like 35 percent of Southern California's coast is currently armored in some way. And and again, armoring is another kind of war battle analogy. But yeah, this idea of drawing these firm lines in the sand and erasing and squeezing out these systems and spaces like wetlands and beaches that are supposed to be kind of these inner tidal buffers between land and sea. And I think the real question is like, we are now, we are currently still kind of in this mode where we are walling off and defending parcel by parcel, infrastructure by infrastructure, piece by piece, city by city. But is it actually possible to wall off the entire coast of California and, you know, what you do here in one city and not in another city. I mean, the ocean doesn't follow jurisdictional boundaries or property lines. So it's it's a really interesting conversation that, you know, at what point are these individual responses going to affect this greater whole? And, you know, what does it take to actually think, to take a step back and really think about this landscape as a more cohesive landscape and what does it mean to act more collectively towards protecting this landscape into the future? Yeah. Let me go to caller GS in South Lake Tahoe. GS, thanks. Join us. Hey, good morning. Uh, my biggest concern, well, two quick things. First of all, as the ocean rises, um, obviously it's going to creep up the beach. It's going to drag, the waves are going to drag sand down. It, the whole conditions are going to change. And if in certain places, maybe Pacifica, the ocean's going to creep up toward the roads and stuff. And, you know, there are times when, you know, flooding happens at the edge of the continent. The, my personal concern, though, is salt water goes down into the ground and the water table, if it gets saline, if it gets full of salt, we our well water, our ability to dig uh, down or put pipes down, uh, what do you call them, build wells and and pull water up to the uh, ground level, that's mm. just going to get us hot salt water and it's going to be a yeah. huge problem. GS, thanks. Rosanna, yeah. How big a concern is that among the people you spoke with, salt water polluting groundwater? GS, that is such a great question. And, you know, like if you go to the Salinas Valley, that is a huge problem because there are that farming region, a critical farming region in California, is right on the coast, and their their wells keep going salty. And you know, once salt water intrudes a groundwater aquifer, I mean, it's you can't really undo that. And so, and it, actually, in Los Angeles, like we've actually been injecting fresh water into our groundwater basin for decades to fend off the seawater that is moving inland underground. And so, you know. It's interesting, and Oxnard is another kind of area along the California coast that comes to mind where it's the, the seawater intrusion is actually affecting the actual water supply. But for the most part, you know, most of our groundwater aquifers are hundreds of feet deep. And so there is more time there, and the groundwater 
like impact and threat that is more pressing that is also still kind of less talked about that's fascinating to me is the shallow groundwater table so you know set aside kind of the deeper groundwater aquifers for a second that's the water that kind of supplies our water supply the shallow aqua the shallow groundwater level is like the groundwater that sits like five ten feet below the surface and that's kind of where the rainwater goes once it absorb the soil is absorbing from a storm it kind of just sits right under the surface it's where like you said our pipes are built and all of that and so if you think about it as a high tide moves in as the ocean moves inland it's also moving inland underground and fresh water tends to sit above salt water and like it floats above salt water so as the tide is moving up it's actually pushing this like shallow groundwater table up towards the surface and that could you know cause flooding if it breaks the surface but you know, in that like 10 feet range just underground, the sea beneath us is like remobilizing potential contaminants. It's possibly cracking pipes and moving infrastructure underground. And this is an issue that is really like, you know, there's a professor at UC Berkeley, Christina Hill, who has been raising kind of the profile on this less talked about issue. But I think the the consequences to our underground infrastructure, the inability for the for our soils and grounds to absorb water when it's raining in a high tide and our rivers are flooded that also causes flooding issues and you know even more so there are so many communities along the bay area and along the coast of california that live just next to a formerly like contaminated site or former mm. industrial site there are a lot of communities that live that are situated on top of industrial sites and the way we have historically cleaned up quote unquote cleaned up our superfund sites and our former industrial sites is to like well they call it a cap they pour concrete on top of it but what about the other three sides where the water is now going to potentially remobilize all of these toxins. So we didn't actually clean up the toxins, we just capped it. And so that's a question that Professor Hill has also been raising. And it's yeah. a question that so many people in California within the policy space is going, oh my God, like, what do we do about this? Because no seawall is going to stop that kind of sea level rise consequence. We're talking with Rosanna Shaw about sea level rise. Let me thank the caller, that number 866-733-6786, if you want to join the conversation. Post online at KQED Forum or email forum at kqed.org. We're talking with Rosanna about her book, California Against the Sea, Visions for Our Vanishing Coastline, a very deeply reported and thoughtfully considered approach to sea level rise. And you, our listeners, are joining the conversation. Scott writes... The saying, waves are the voices of tides, seems so appropriate in this conversation. We ignore what the waves are saying and are surprised to see these climate changes. Rosanna, can you talk about sand replacement, what that strategy is, and why ultimately it's problematic? Yeah, so, okay, so in addition to building a seawall, another option that feels, you know, that's pretty popular and your first kind of foray into this issue is to, okay, why don't we just truck in sand and just keep building out the beach in perpetuity? So like if seawalls kill beaches, let's just bring in sand. Well, the question is, where is the sand coming from and who pays for it? And, you know, if everyone suddenly wants to bring sand onto their beach, we're going to run out of sand pretty quickly. And yeah, I mean, the thing is, like the beach, you know, we so often think about the beach as a place, like a, a static place that we go visit and we put our towel down. But actually, the beach is a process like sand is moving along our beaches at every 
every tide and every like crash of every wave and yeah i love your point that it's almost like its own current yeah Mm -hmm. yeah there's a current of sand that runs along our our coastline and so you know there i I looked at a couple of places like in san diego county they kind of a recognize that the coast is there's a sand a current of sand that runs along the coast so they spent millions of dollars dredging you know sand and putting it at like, you know, the top of the quote unquote current, you know, at the top, like at the top of the count, north of the county. And then they were like, okay, let's have these sand, the, the sand kind of like potentially feed 12 beaches. But that sand, after millions of dollars, washed away within one season. And, it, you know, sand is just not going to stay on the beach in a way that you know, we want it to. And so yeah. it's expensive. It's just, you know, is it sustainable? And, that and where is the sand going to come from? Like all and you know, someone once told me it costs like a million dollars just to like activate a dredge. And you know, how often and how much sand are we going to have to like? This this is a race against nature that just doesn't feel realistic. Yeah. Know, depending on who you talk to. I know. Again, your descriptions are so great. Like you say, two hundred forty thousand cubic yards of sand, the amount to make a half mile long beach about a hundred feet wide, requires twenty four thousand dump trucks full of sand. Even working seven days a week at fifty dump trucks a day, it would take more than sixteen months. And then I cannot imagine having just endless dump trucks on a daily basis bringing sand. But you also say that you have to find sand that is compatible with the yeah. beach itself. Uh, we're about to come up on a break, but do you want to just talk quickly about why that's so critical? Yeah, you can't just bring any sand. I mean, it, uh, there one town, Imperial Beach in San Diego County, tried uh, tried to do a sand replenishment project uh, a couple of years ago. But, you know, if the sand is like too coarse, that could create problems. If it's too fine grained, then it just washes away so quick quickly. And so I think finding the right sand for the right geography and the geology of the region is also truly a complication for this solution that feels like a solution. But again, are we really going to try to race against nature here? Yeah. And that San Diego story of in 2001, them spending $17.5 million to replenish sand. And that on one day of the first large waves of winter, that sand was gone. They tried it again, too, 10 years later, and it still didn't work. Uh, We are talking about sea level rise, and we will talk about what is working right after the break with Rosanna Shaw. Share your questions or thoughts about sea level rise with us by emailing forum at kqed.org, by posting on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Discord at KQED Forum, and our number is 866-733-6786. What's your relationship to the coast? What draws you there? How are you feeling about the impacts of sea level rise on that coast that we all love so much? And do you feel like you are already affected? This is Forum. I'm Ina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're getting a handle on sea level rise in California, or at least our understanding of it, at least. And we're inviting you, our listeners, to tell us, have you witnessed or experienced the effects of rising seas in your community? Has your town or city taken steps to try to deal with sea level rise? What's your relationship to the coast? What draws you there? And is sea level rise affecting how you see your future in California? 866-733-6786, the number to call, the email address forum at kqed.org. We're at social, at social channels on Facebook, Instagram, Discord, Twitter, and you can find us at KQED Forum. Patrick writes, one can get an idea of sea level risks by one, insurance market, and two, home and property values. As insurers move out of the market and coastal property values decrease, then it will be clear that this is a crisis. This is happening. The risk is real. Jim on Discord writes, in Mountain View, where our corporate tax giveaway district is literally called Shoreline, we encourage the largest, most powerful companies to build in the worst flood zones. I used to think this was foolish, but I wonder if it gives them incentive to fight climate change. Talk about Marina, Rosanna Shaw. Um, They are successfully implementing essentially managed retreat strategies, you say. What are they doing? Yeah, and I'm so glad you brought up Marina because I this book I want to emphasize is not depressing. I mean, it is depressing, but there there are <laughs> moments of hope and I I really, you know, the my approach to writing any about any issue in the environmental space is that I can't just tell people the sky is falling, I have to find solutions. And so the this community, this town Marina along the Monterey Bay emerged in just like my search for signs of hope and signs of like what we could do going forward. And again, like, you know, there's no one size fits all solution to this issue. But Marina was so interesting because this was a town that for decades has kind of acknowledged, you know, so many of the themes we've been talking about, that the ocean is meant to move inland and the coast is meant to move with it and that we're meant to move with with that, you know. And so they've always created this, you know, they've, they've been really kind of forward thinking about where to develop and where not to develop and creating this buffer space, this incredible buffer space between the ocean and the actual line in the sand that we're kind of drawing further inland. And so for them, when this managed retreat conversation started happening, they weren't afraid of it. And you know, they're saying that, you know, managed retreat, like, yes, retreat feels like failure if you're kind of stuck in this world of war analogies. But what if Manage retreat is just marching in a new direction. And so that's kind of really what they're embracing. And the spirit of it was super inspiring. And just what does it mean to create enough space for the ocean so that in the coming decades, we can continue to live in harmony with it in a way that doesn't feel like a battle. And so that we can continue to be able to go enjoy all of that, you know, is out there that that we can appreciate along you know the shoreline with and how does it mean what does it mean to coexist with the the plants and the animals that are also meant to be there and so you know one of the things that they did was they they started they started the managed retreat conversation the way you're supposed to identify the places that will likely need attention at some point in the future and but rather than saying okay this place needs to move by this time 
they kind of created this triggered phased approach. So once the water gets to this far into the parking lot, we have to start a conversation. Or once this place has flooded X amount of times per year, per month, Mm -hmm. time to start doing something. And again, and like, let's have a check-in 10 years from now. So they they started this process of really transitioning, you know, going from the short term of like, okay, we don't need to make any changes tomorrow or to, you know, or even like a year from now, but we definitely know we will have to make changes at some point 20, 30, 40 years from now. And so how do we start that process? How do we enter this transition period? And how do we, again, like I think so many people still think of sea level rise, uh, responding to sea level rise as a one-time action, but it's actually a very long process that we should have began yesterday. And the, the sooner we begin this process, the less devastating it will be once a disaster hits. Again, like this is what it means to manage, you know, or plan your your adaptation pro- like responses to sea level rise. So seawalls are forbidden. Sand replacement and dredging from the marina is not allowed. Real estate disclosures for sea level rise are required and so on. Let me go to Dave in Pacifica. Hi, Dave. Join us. Hello. This is Dave. Go right ahead. Hi. Yeah, hi. I live in Pacifica and I have for quite a while. I live in the uh, kind of in the northern end in the Fairmont district or the Manor district along and uh, I'm sort of an amateur geologist, so I've been watching coastal erosion in that sandstone bluff area for the last 18 years. And I think uh, nobody really kind of gets it, like what the situation is up there. The sandstone bluff is very soft. You can basically dig into the, quote, sandstone with your hand. That's one thing. And I have watched the creation of a very detailed seawall to protect the bluff up there that happened quite, I don't know, about 15 years ago. And, um, uh, let's see, excuse me. Oh, that's okay. And so, and you are feeling like that is not the answer. Yeah. It was, it was, it was very well made. It was very well made, sunk very deep into the ground below sea level, um, where they, to protect the bluff. And in about, six years, a big storm came, and large parts of that seawall failed. Hmm. They collapsed and in a very kind of shocking way. Well, they rebuilt the same seawall in the same way. Um, so I'm just looking at, at this and thinking, you know, this is just really, it's a managed retreat, yes. It's either going to be, we're either going to deal with it or it's going to be managed for us. Dave, thanks for sharing your reflections and for giving us some insight into what happened with that seawall. Let me go to Peggy in Montera. Hi, Peggy, you're on. Hi, thank you. I lived in Pacifica for 10 years from 1970 to 1980 on Shoreview in the Pacific Manor um, District, right on the ocean. I was 10 feet up from the water. I had a path down to the beach. When I moved in, I had 75 feet of backyard. Ten years later, I had 25 feet of backyard left, and they brought in riprap, to, um, which washed away, and then they brought it in again. Yeah. I'll take my answer off the air. I just wanted to validate your point. Thanks, Peggy. Riprap, one of the materials used to be able to create these seawalls. Do you want to just say what that is exactly, what's in it, Rosanna? Yeah, riprap is um, the the piles of rocks, you know, very simple explanation that you kind of see as a, so it's like, you know, seawalls come in a lot of forms. And so the, there's, you know, a concrete panel could be a seawall. The Embarcadero in San Francisco can be a gigantic seawall. And riprap is the 
piles of, you know, large boulders, cobble that also creates kind of this, again, hard line in the sand. And I'm, I'm just so fascinated to hear Dave and Peggy's stories living in Pacifica. And it's reminding me there's this community called Land's End in Pacifica. And I think it's close to maybe where Dave might be might live in that part of town. But Land's End, like a couple decades ago, had like 150 feet of land <laughs> before the edge of the bluff. And now it's quite literally at Land's End. And it's just, it's fascinating too, hearing Dave's story about the cliffs, because we have blinded ourselves to the natural processes of the shoreline. I mean, these cliffs, especially the sandy cliffs in Pacifica, like these are the cliffs that feed the beaches. That that's you know the the waves are supposed to carve and chip away at the cliffs, grind up the sand, take it back out to the ocean, get it ground up even more, and then have the waves bring it back to feed our beaches. And yes. again, seawalls and any kind of human alterations to this process disrupts this natural, you know dance between land and ocean and yeah what does it mean to really see that and to acknowledge it and to question it and to think okay is this how we want to continue to do it because I'm hearing you know that person that Dave mentioned who's who built a seawall and then built it again after it got destroyed by the ocean I'm I, I'm, I'm actually I've um, I was a once an economist in a different life but I think about the opportunity costs of redoing something rather than rethinking it and you know, what are what are the opportunity costs of like continuing these conversations that we're stuck in rather than rethinking how we should be approaching this issue? Well, this listener writes, seawalls do kill beaches. It seems the best friend for beaches is vegetation. They appear mm-hmm. to always be more symbiotic. Do you want to talk about Alviso and about other strategies related to natural vegetation? Yeah, I there's been the really, you know, and I, I will say like, there is a lot of hope too. I've been really inspired by the growing momentum across California and all these different spaces on just talking about this issue. And one of the emerging through lines is this idea of living shorelines and like leveraging the natural, like nature in in the face of all these forces from nature. And so, for example, wetlands, we've destroyed more than 90% of the wetlands along the California coast, but wetlands used to be such an incredible buffer between land and ocean. And, you know, there are these plants like take root, they actually are created carbon sequestration. And again, like they, they hold and trap sediment and mud in a way that helps create this like inner tidal buffer. And so in places like Alviso, you know, if you've ever flown down like into San Francisco, you'll see these gigantic like reddish ponds and you're like, what are they? And, you know, those all used to be wetlands that got trapped into salt evaporation ponds when salt you know, mining was a was a much bigger industry in the region. And so there's this really incredible effort right now to turn many of these salt ponds back into wetlands, which could serve as a really cool natural buffer. And then I would just say the other really incredible ecosystem that we kind of forgotten and kind of erased from our coastline are beach dunes. And so, you know, I think of Santa Monica near where I live and people's image of the beach now is just this flattened, wide, like very pristine beach, but that's all, you know, human engineering. And naturally along our coastline, we should be seeing these like amazing like mounds and hills of sand. And, you know, these are natural banks of stored sediment. And the way these dunes build up, or actually if you allow kind of the plants to take root, there are a lot of native plants along the coastline that are really good at withstanding salt spray and being underwater sometimes. And they kind of hold 
and accumulate sand as it's blowing in. And that's how you get these like beautiful kind of rolling dunes. And again, if you go back to Marina along Monterey Bay, like they have an incredible dune system because they never tried to flatten it. They never tried to recreate like what we think a beach should be. They didn't try to clean up and pull roots and just, again, erase the wildlife and the plant life along the shoreline that's meant to be there. The dunes are beautiful. I have so many fond memories of playing hide and seek in those dunes. (laughs) Uh, Someone who grew up right on the edge of Ventura in L.A. County. Um, There are some beautiful dunes in Ventura, yeah. Yeah. We're talking with Rosanna Shaw. Check out her book, California Against the Sea, Visions for Our Vanishing Coastline. It really is a fascinating, difficult to read, but also very hopeful study of how we address sea level rise in California. This is a fundraising period for many public radio stations. You are listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Ron writes, rising sea level is not just a surface level problem. The level of water in the soils also rises through subsurface percolation. Seawalls and berms don't do anything to stop this. The result is that old toxics are brought closer to the surface so the water content of the soil rises, also make it more susceptible to liquefaction liquefaction in earthquakes. Another listener asks, I stop my car to ask, as the sea level rises along the coastline, doesn't that also extend inland? I mean, wherever water meets the sea, the coastline follows the river, whatever inland water bodies as well. So five miles from the coast isn't the answer. Rather, uphill is the direction. Rosanna? That's a really interesting question. And yes, because it's for... (laughs) And, you know, someone actually asked me this question, too, a couple of days ago. I, as a coastal report, as the coastal reporter, I I think of the coastal zone so much more broadly than I think what most people think of the coast, because, yeah, like these watersheds are connected and we should be thinking three, four or five miles inland. And is the answer to move uphill? That's an interesting question. But it's more like let's think about the systems. You know, I, I've been thinking about Los Angeles and like all the rivers and creeks that we have either lined with concrete and trapped and kind of forced into one pathway then and i think that the the way to step back is to really think about where where does water want to move if we weren't trapping it with pavement with concrete with just hardened structures that are you know directing the course of a stream or a river or affecting kind of where the ocean will move once the tide is trying to move in and you know and then then we and then think about our built environment and our relationship to that in relationship to that. And so, um, yeah, and it, it just, you know, all of Los Angeles is a floodplain. I'm always fascinated by that. In the Bay Area, like, I I mean, sure, uphill. San Francisco's got lots of hills, but also, like, San Francisco along the Bayside, there is so much of San Francisco used to be a marsh, and we just drained it, filled it in, built the Embarcadero to hold back the Bay, and then built turned it into land. And so now the ocean is trying to take back that land. And what does that mean for, you know, a city as iconic and as important as San Francisco? Like, those are really hard questions. And I think, again, with this book, it's, you know, I think so many people would rather just not talk about it. But it, and there are no easy answers. But if we don't start talking about it, it's just going to be so much more devastating if we just wait until disaster hits. And then, I mean, look at the chaos that ensues after a hurricane in Texas or Florida or, you know, hmm. what happened in with Katrina. Like, if we don't plan ahead, you know, who gets left behind and, you know, how how do people get taken care of after a disaster? Like, that, that is something that, that is truly what it means to start managing our approach to climate change ahead of the disaster. 
We've had comments, a couple of comments about concerns of how San Francisco is ignoring sea level rise in ways that are expensive and dangerous. Susan writes, over the past 10 plus years, every prediction regarding climate change has been reached far in advance of the estimated timeline. In the U.S., increased hurricanes, floods and wildfires have been easily written off by many on the right as coincidental. Americans have perfected avoidance. You know, one thing that um, I was struck by was the fact that we did pass Prop 20 when we approved in 1972 a California Coastal Commission that was essentially charged with trying to keep as much coast available to us, to the public, for as long as possible. And I know that Coastal Commission decrees and so on have been controversial, especially as cities have tried to fight sea level rise <laughs> again in the in the battle. But does the fact that we elected to do this give you hope, Rosanna? <laughs> Yeah, and I do have hope. And I think, you know, with the Coastal Act of 1976, uh, which was a, you know, voter passed piece of legislation, like I, it's, we have the infrastructure, the system, like to approach and think about our coastline as a and cohesive the will, landscape. <laughs> yeah. And the yeah. will. Yeah. And I think that's, and I do, I feel like, you know, the book does end with, I feel like enough hope. And I think it's beyond hope. I'm asking people to have courage to change, to have courage to have these conversations, to have courage to think about all the things that we're still hanging on to that we might need to start letting go. But, you know, by letting go, realizing that we are creating space for something that might be even more incredible. And so one of, I mean, one of the things that I think about a lot is this word resilience. I mean, it's so wonky, it's something that happens that comes up all the time in climate change conversations. But what is actually resilience? And I think for so long, resilience was got kind of got this like, we shall overcome and we shall rebuild, you know, once a hurricane or a storm raises, flattens our town, like we shall rebuild exactly the way it was before because that is strength that is resilience but actually is resilience truly recognizing that change is going to happen whether we resist it or not and what does it mean to look at that change in the face to not be afraid of it and to work with it and you know that's something that really became so powerful for me as that word evolved and I think we have the systems to do this. We just have to be willing to have these conversations. Rosanna Shaw of the LA Times. Her book is California Against the Sea. Thank you, Rosanna, for making me think of California against the sea, meaning alongside the sea. <laughs> really appreciated talking with you today. Thank you so much, Mina. And this hour form was produced by lead producer Susie Britton. Our team also includes Caroline Smith, Grace Wan, Ashley Eng, Marlena Jackson, Rotondo. Also, Danny Bringer, Christopher Beale, Catherine Monaghan, and Brian Douglas, Jericho Reininger, Emiko Oda, Ethan Tovin Lindsay, and Holly Kernan. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. The angel opens her eyes. Funds for the production of KQED's Forum are provided by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Germanicos Foundation, the Heising Simons Foundation, and the Bernard Osher Foundation, supporting higher education and the arts. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence. 
June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country. We need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.